Well, good morning, everybody, again. Uh, last week, if you were here, I started a, a series, it's going to take a, a few weeks here, called Unoffendable. And uh, last week, I talked about the illusion of righteous anger. Today, I want to talk about how we can stop being shocked. I have a friend who is in a state of constant shock. Everything that she doesn't like, she acts like it's like she just saw somebody kick a puppy. Just <gasps> everything. Just it's the first time that this has ever happened, and it's the worst thing ever. We were having a conversation online the other day, and she was telling me about one of her coworkers that she just can't stand because she always gives out backhanded compliments. Uh, these are insults in disguise. An example would be like. You would look so much prettier if your hair was longer. Or, I'm proud of your courage to wear that dress in public. You know, it kind of sounds nice. It's uplifting until you realize what they're saying. And you look ugly. That's what they're saying. And she said, I can't believe she would say something like that to me. And so I asked her, how long has she been saying these kinds of things to you? And she said, well, as long as I've worked there, like seven years. I'm like, well, don't you think it's time to start believing it? Seven years? You can't believe she's acting this way? Maybe let go of the shock a little bit. How can you still be shocked seven years later if she's done the same thing since the beginning? The truth is, as Christians, we're in constant shock. We look at the way this world is heading and we act like we can't believe it. We act like we weren't told this was going to happen. We act like this hasn't been happening for the last forever. And that constant shock keeps us in a really judgmental mindset. I find it truly astounding that God, who knows me better than I know myself, still desires to be in a relationship with me. Frankly, I don't even want to be around myself too long. To be honest, I often grow very weary of my own inner thoughts. I get frustrated with my own immaturity, with my own self-centeredness. Yet despite all of that, God understands me on a deeper level. He knows my true intentions and somehow remains unfazed. I have flaws, but he's not taken aback by them. He doesn't abandon me. In fact, when I turn to him, he eagerly embraces me. God doesn't walk away. Instead, he runs when I see him. As I mentioned before, this is truly astonishing. The goal of this series is to learn from him and emulate his reactions towards other flawed individuals. When I reached voting age, I got really into politics. Like... Senior year, I was really into it. I even started writing about it online with kind of a humorous bent. My brother Mike, in his speech at my wedding reception here at the time, said that he considered me a young Rush Limbaugh, which at the time I considered a great compliment. The problem I would come to realize soon after that, though, was that I had let my politics intertwine itself with my faith to a degree that 
the politics informed my faith instead of my faith informing my politics. Suddenly I realized I was much quicker to drop a conservative talking point than I was a lesson that I'd learned from Scripture. And the problem with that, no matter what your political affiliation, is that when your politics inform your faith, you will, default const- you will by default constantly live in a state of constant shock. Because half of the country is doing something that you don't like every day and you feel like it's your duty to speak up about it. And of course, it's not just politics that does this to us. You can see the Pharisees exhibiting the same behavior in the Gospels. And make no mistake here, the Pharisees knew the Torah. They studied and taught, they learned from each other, they held each other accountable, and they did a lot of good work in the communities around them. And while some may have had unscrupulous motives, most believed that what they were doing and saying was in defense of God. And Jesus called most of them vipers. They were so devoted to enforcing the law that they lost sight of the people. And that's why Jesus came for the leper and the harlot and the adulteress and the tax collector and the thief. Think about how we as a global church tend to react to those people. We are more upset that they exist around us than we are loving to them as people in need of Jesus. Maybe from afar, we feel more loving. But when they're right here, we get uncomfortable. A fundamental aspect of living a life free from offense and practicing radical forgiveness is understanding the true nature of human beings, how we've been since the beginning, flawed. And that's point one, accept that humans are flawed. We must stop being constantly shocked when people say or do things that we disapprove of because this is inherent in human nature. And even us as believers should be acutely aware of this fact because if we're being honest with ourselves, we all fall short all of the time. We've just conditioned ourselves to dismiss our failings and excuse them away. Think about traffic. Picture yourself at a stoplight. You're the first one in line and you are waiting patiently for that green light. And your phone starts ringing. And so you reach over to grab it, and as you do, the light turns green, but you don't notice it right away. And as you pick up your phone, you hear a from behind you, and you're like, oh, goodness gracious, and you start moving, and you give your little apology wave, and you kind of get a little upset that they had the, the audacity to honk at you over such a minor infraction, a couple seconds. But then put yourself in the car behind that car. And someone is in front of you and you realize that they're fiddling with something down here and not paying attention. The lights turn green. You've been sitting here for two seconds. Hey, I got places to be. No matter which car you're in, the other person's the idiot. Right? Whether we realize it or not, we are predisposed to believing we always have good intentions and others always have bad ones. And that's why the human heart is untrustworthy. Jesus had a deep understanding of the human heart. Scripture even states that he didn't need anyone to tell him what people were like because he knew their thoughts. Uh, we're going to read John 2, 23 through 25. If you have your Bible, you can read it with me, but it's going to be up on the screen as well. This says, While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. 
Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Uh, I like the way the New Living Translation says it. It says, no one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Now, this is not meant to induce guilt, but rather to acknowledge a reality. So we can stop being astonished by people's words and actions, because we're all like this to some degree. And anybody who gets up in a pulpit and tells you that we're not is scamming you. That is one thing I certainly appreciate about the three pastors that I've worked under here at Highland. They were honest about their failings. Pastor Johnny often shared about times that his anger had gotten the best of him from here on the pulpit. He shared a lot more of those stories with us on staff. And while some of them were funny to relive because they had happened so long ago and maybe got a bit outlandish, they still served as cautionary lessons, both for him and for those of us he shared them with. His willingness to acknowledge something that he struggled with made him more trustworthy to us on staff, not less. It brought us closer together as a staff and as friends. And frankly, that's how this works. We're all broken to a degree, and once we realize this, we can build relationships. Once we acknowledge that people are flawed, we can develop friendships with them knowing that they are broken. And that's point number two, the friend, the broken. Adopting this perspective will make us the least judgmental individuals, attracting others who desire non-judgmental company. We always default to a judgmental character. Again, it's how we are predisposed to see the people around us. We assume the worst intentions, especially when we feel wrong. So let's go back to traffic. How many times have you been driving down 21st Street here, and a car speeds past you going 10, maybe 15, 20 over the speed limit? And you think... Your first reaction is always, gosh, this guy is so impatient, he's going to put all of our safety at risk as he weaves in and out of traffic. Sometimes I have the urge to kind of box them in and go the same speed as the person in front of me or next to me so they can't pass. I always jump to them having bad motives. But 21st Street is also how many people drive to the emergency room. How many of those were actually a panicked parent rushing their child to the ER? I know it happens because I've been that parent. My wife has been that parent. Separate occasions. And I know that when my child is wailing in the back seat and my desire to get them in front of a doctor as soon as possible kicks in, I'm going to be pushing on the gas a little harder. I'm not saying that that makes it right to not drive safely, but I do say that I understand it. I can emphasize with a race to the hospital. And while I can't know if the motives are good and bad in that moment, that's kind of my point. In any situation, we don't know people's motives. We don't know the backstory. We don't know the long string of events of good and bad things that have happened to them that brought them to this moment in their life that we're judging. And that should cause us to pause. I don't tend to get into many arguments anymore. But I do somehow tend to end up in the role of peacemaker between people. God has graced me 
with the ability to remain calm when people around me are upset, which usually helps me speak some truths into situations where adrenaline is overwhelming others. I mean, you can ask some people on staff here. I don't always want to be in that role, but if God puts me in a place to calm someone down, point out other angles, help them see possible motives and cool heads, I'm going to be faithful in that. Which is so different from my mindset a decade ago. And don't get me wrong, there are times that I still need that too. But thankfully, God often reveals in me an empathy, even for people that I feel have wronged me. And it's allowed me a wonderful gift. I can stand here and say that at this point in my life, I don't hold any grudges against anybody. Which again is crazy for me to think. Because it used to be the complete opposite. I used to build a case up against people at the drop of a hat. The Apostle Paul wrote that we are not equipped to judge others' intentions because we struggle to even evaluate our own motives. Here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. He said, A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it's required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not justified by this. It's the Lord who judges me. I personally find it wild that Paul would be this self-aware. I don't judge myself because I don't think I've done anything wrong. But what I think doesn't mean diddly squat, because God alone has the final say. This is not the only God can judge me mindset. It's the, it's impossible for me to be fully aware of my shortcomings because I'm inherently forgiving of myself and my own actions, even to the point where I don't always realize I've done anything wrong kind of mindset. If we can get to the point where we realize that we can't even accurately judge ourselves and our own motives when we should be the most keenly aware of them, then we should be able to realize that we are wholly unequipped to render judgment against people around us whom we don't know. And if we can get to that point, we can then choose to stop being in constant shock and start loving them. Choosing not to be offended by others, refusing to be scandalized by their behavior, enables us to stand by them for the long haul. And frankly, realizing judging others isn't our job should be a major relief for us, because what a chore that is. It's taking a weight off of our shoulders that we were never meant to carry in the first place. Jesus presents us with a better and lighter way to interact with others. And that's point number three. Follow the better way to interact. Forgiveness is a brilliant, radical, and arduous act. It requires us to deny ourselves and choose not to hold on to anger towards others. Carl Minninger a uh, famed psychiatrist, once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven by God, 75% of them could walk out the next day. There's a Spanish story of a father and a son who had become estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to find him. He searched for months and couldn't find his son. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper, and it read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And on Saturday, 
Hundreds of Pacos filled the street in front of that office looking for forgiveness from their fathers. Everyone is begging for forgiveness on the inside. And as believers, we may feel a little more at ease spiritually knowing that, if nothing else, we have forgiveness in Christ. But for those who are still lost spiritually, should we not have more empathy for them? Should we not show them what forgiveness looks like? We forgive others not based on what they did to us, but because of what God did for us. Now this doesn't settle all the questions of justice, fairness, or blame. But it does bring healing and often a fresh start. And it keeps us from holding on to grudges, which is an act against the character of God. Just look again at that classic verse that we've all heard over and over again on forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus replied, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. I'll let y'all do the math. Y'all tell me how many that is. Anybody? 490? 490. So tell me something. How would you be able to keep track of having to forgive someone in your life almost 500 times? Well, you would have to keep a book. A record book. You'd have a whole library at home. One for each person that you know in your life. And you'd be keeping a record book of every single time that they wronged you. Every single time that they sinned against you. That way, when somebody reaches that 491st time, you can look them dead in the eye and say, I'm sorry, you are no longer covered under biblical policy. This friendship shall be dissolved forthwith. Please untag me out of all your Facebook photos. Now, some translations got rid of the multiplication aspect and translate Jesus as saying not seven times, but 77 times. But even then, 77 is a lot to try and remember. So maybe that's not what Jesus was really saying. Oh, thought that was me. <clears throat> we're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to wipe slates clean. Now, there's a mindset that some people have that is something along the lines of, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. I got bad news. That's not forgiveness. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be stupid. It doesn't mean that if someone has broken your trust and hasn't done anything to earn that trust back, that you can just forget everything and risk them hurting you again. Boundaries are okay. In fact, they're necessary. But forgiveness means that you will no longer hold it against them. You won't throw it in their face. You won't bring it up a year from now, ten years from now, etc. You'll let them earn back that trust. When my grandparents were my age, my grandfather uh, was going out a couple times a week. He kept telling my grandmother that he was going out with buddies. And the longer it went on, she got suspicious. And she noticed missing money from their bank account and jumped to the conclusion that he was having an affair and buying this new woman gifts. When she confronted him about it, he actually had not been having an affair. He was going out with buddies, but he was gambling. And though this was less of a betrayal, her anger had already peaked and wasn't coming back down. She told him she would be in charge of the bank account now, 
so she could keep an eye on their money, and he wasn't allowed to go out with his friends anymore either. And at the moment, that was probably a reasonable request. But 50 years later, she was still enforcing those two rules. When he left for work, he had to come straight home. He never got anywhere near the family finances. My grandmother took that resentment to her grave. Throughout the years, any time they had an argument, it always ended the same way. My grandmother would bring up how he couldn't be trusted because of this one event. So by the time I was old enough to tell what was happening, any time my grandmother would disagree with something that he said, he would immediately back down and say, you're right, honey. Imagine living with a grudge in your heart for your entire adult life. Never letting it go. I loved my grandmother, but she was not the kindest person. She clearly loved her family. She showed it in many ways, but it also felt like she was always on the edge of exploding. I always felt like I had to tiptoe the line with her. And her attitude came out in some pretty rough ways sometimes. She said some stuff to me when I was a child that still stings to think about. Now looking back on it, seeing it for what it was, she is a person who never learned to forgive. Anytime she was wronged, it was a new grudge for her to hold on to. A new piece of baggage that she had to pick up and carry every day. She had never been taught the importance of forgiveness, and her immediate reaction to being challenged fostered a belief in her that she was always in the right. And so she also never learned repentance. Now, please hear me. I'm not trying to badmouth my grandma. If anything, I have empathy. I struggle with the same things. I've just been fortunate enough to be shown my mistakes which eventually brings me to a place of repentance and forgiveness. I hate that she had to live life that way because she too was made a victim of that anger. It built a cage around her heart that she struggled to free herself from, and she never discovered how repentance could be the cure to that. Repentance is crucial for embracing a life of radical forgiveness, which means admitting when we're wrong. And that's the final point today. Admit when you're wrong. There's a proverb that states, the first person to testify seems right until they're cross-examined. It's Proverbs 18, 17. The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. And think about that. We see that in pop culture all the time. Someone comes out with accusations against someone else and the world will believe that person without hearing from the other person. Then maybe years later, new evidence is brought to light, and it was actually the accuser who was in the wrong, but the court of public opinion has already made its decision without all the facts. Well, the first person to testify in our minds about situations that we're in is ourselves. And because we think our motives are pure, or at least more pure than the other person, we deem ourselves innocent. And it can take an incredible amount of effort to humble ourselves and consider that we may be in the wrong or that there is another solution neither party can see. Self-righteousness 
the inability to admit when we're wrong is a common trait among religious individual and religious behavior. It just is. We believe we understand what the Bible says, but we don't read it enough. We base our morality on a mixture of things that we've heard about the Bible, things that we've learned as kids, and politics. We look at everything in black and white, and we leave no room for gray areas. We struggle to give people the benefit of the doubt. We attribute motives to others' actions as purposefully evil and deeply sinful while brushing off our own mistakes as slip-ups. And it's the worst offenders of this mindset that are often the most vocal. The one most willing to wag the finger, to confront someone with way too much bravado, to hold a picket sign, and cement in the mind of the unbeliever that if this is what Christianity is, I want no part of it. Jesus constantly urges us to humble ourselves and consider the possibility that we might be mistaken about something. And also to remember all the times that we were wrong. And let that remind us that it's still possible now. We can remember the person that we were before we came to Christ. And think about how we would treat ourselves if we encountered our past selves today. We can start each day aware that people will do all the flawed things they're capable of, and we can practice forgiving them when they do. I work with a ministry called Love Thy Nerd. Love Thy Nerd's mission is to love and serve our nerdy neighbors, those who have a deep love or appreciation for some fandom or another, be that tabletop gaming, video games, comic books, movies, a myriad of other forms of nerdy content out there. There's a lot of work that they do that is overtly and openly Christian, holding summits and conferences to help pastors and churches learn how to reach out to the nerd community, which is outpacing the Christian community by about a billion people, and help build bridges that were burned down between nerds and the church in the 80s and the 90s. But LTN goes to gaming conventions as well, and what they do there is completely different. Most Christian organizations that go to these kind of events will buy a booth and set up with a bunch of Bibles and tracts to hand out. LTN, however, actually goes and volunteers at other people's booths. And these aren't just Christian booths. They're just random companies who could use help playtesting games with people at the convention. And our team makes connections and builds friendships and plays games with anybody and everybody And when someone asks what their shirt or their lanyard says, love thy nerd, what does that mean? Well, it opens up an opportunity for a real conversation. And most of the time, little comes from it right away. There's not a whole lot of uh, salvation stories that are happening at the conventions that they're at. But when they find out that the people that they've been playing this game with for the last hour are Christians... It works to till the soil of a heart hardened by hurt that they've experienced in the past from church people. And here's the thing. If you've been to a comic or a gaming convention, you'll know that there are all kinds of people there, and some of them are going to be dressed inappropriately or act offensively. Some of these people, spiritually speaking, are in a rough or defiant place. And LTN treats them all the same way. Because these people that go on these missions have learned to stop acting shocked and start seeing everyone as someone God loves and wants as a part of his family. And they will play games with them and laugh with them and find things in common with them. 
that they enjoy and bond over those commonalities. And that builds a relationship and that builds trust. And that's when you can start speaking into the heart of people that you've just met. I've heard dozens of stories of members that are now in the LTN community that have found healing because of moments like this. And they have grown as believers and have found church homes again and sought to help others do the same. One instance of empathy over anger, forgiveness over uh, grudges, repentance over self-righteousness, acceptance over shock, could be the turning point in someone's life who had given up on Christianity. Following Jesus in their eyes can turn from a negative idea to something attractive and positive again. Before I wrap up today, I want to take a look at John 6. I'm going to read uh, verses 25 through 42. And this was just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 by multiplying the bread and the fish. Read along with me here. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign, then, are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of these he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I have come down from heaven? Jesus had one message here. The only work that matters is that people come to believe in him. The Jews here were flawed and struggled to believe. And they started saying, isn't he marrying Joseph's kid? They knew some of the truth, but not the whole truth. Yet knowing what little they did, they felt justified in brushing Jesus off. How often do we act on incomplete information with solid confidence? How often do we judge others based on half-truths or assumptions? Again, Jesus knew that we would all be this way. He knows our hearts, and our hearts are broken. 
recognizing our own brokenness is a vital step toward becoming unoffendable. What actions can you take today to initiate this process? You can approach each day with the understanding that people will be people and let go of the shock. Instead, practice radical forgiveness.